0: Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, editor-in-chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, incentives truce. For years, states have enticed businesses to relocate or expand operations by offering tax breaks and other financial incentives. But following a recent high-profile bidding war, some have called for a ceasefire. Here to talk about recent efforts to limit incentives competition through an interstate compact is Tax Notes reporter Aaron Davis. Aaron, welcome back.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Why don't we start off with, can you explain these interstate compacts and what is the idea behind them?
1: Yeah, so these interstate compacts, they're mostly an attempt by states to set some rules on the battlefield of tax incentives and collectively agree not to use particular economic development tools against each other as they compete for businesses. Many of the proponents behind this, they've pointed to the famous game theory paradox called the prisoner's dilemma as a good example. In that situation, you have two prisoners in solitary confinement and prosecutors offer them a plea bargain to betray their Confederate, and they can both betray each other and lose, one can betray the other and win, or they can both remain silent and be better off than when they betray each other. And here, the prosecutors of the companies and site selection firms and the states are the prisoners who feel compelled to offer larger and larger tax breaks and grants to win the political award of bringing a business to your state. But the compact itself starts off with a small buy-in, almost similar to, you know, a prisoner exchange. In this case, states would need to agree to end company-specific subsidies to poach businesses from another compact state, and once two states agree, then the interstate compact is created, and a board of directors is appointed, and over time, additional economic development strategies and policies can be agreed upon so that uh, less tax dollars are lost from what appears to be a zero-sum competition.
0: Now, what brought about this recent push for compacts?
1: So it really seems, you know, from all the people I've talked to, uh, it seems like the public spectacle of the Amazon HQ2 search embarrassed, you know, many of the politicians and their constituents or angered them as well after seeing immense sums and services offered to what at the time was the largest company in the world. That display certainly soured many people and that in turn informed many politicians who agreed to work on legislation for this compact. It was also a big motivating factor for Dan Johnson, the Chicago-based lobbyist who helped connect politicians to initially collaborate on this. And I've also heard about resurging popularity of compacts more as a reflection of citizens, I guess, dwindling faith in the effectiveness of the federal government. They're sort of going about and doing it themselves. In looking around, I saw compacts to commit to the national popular vote. This one's been going on for a while. Rather than the electoral college, there were also many compacts to address interstate licensing issues and some to create Second Amendment sanctuaries and others.
0: Let's take a step back and how about let's talk a bit about the history of tax incentives and how they first became used to entice businesses?
1: So the history actually goes back a long ways. There was early example of a tax incentive war from the 16th century when Italian port cities competition with one another essentially eliminated duties and excise taxes. But our instance is a little bit more recent. Many of our states have particular rules written into their constitution to prevent gifts and or subsidies to private enterprises. Uh, this started back in uh, 1825 around that area when the Erie Canal had opened and it was funded through a revenue bond scheme and repaid after 20 years through tolls on canal users. Around that time it was a wild success and a lot of states started funding railroads, canals, and these public projects and after a little bit of a dip in the economy a lot of them couldn't be paid back and the state was on the hook so around that time many states put into their constitutions prohibitions on funding private enterprise I guess. For a while that held but over Years it was sort of eroded through court decisions until around in the 1920s there was one mayor in Columbia, Missouri, Hugh Lawson White, who sort of kicked off the modern flavor of tax subsidies with this program called Balance Agriculture with Industry Program, and was described sort of as a he got a lot of the town together to basically commit to building infrastructure for this one dress shirt and pajama making company called the Reliance Manufacturing Company, and. That actually brought this company down to Columbia, Missouri, and it was a wild success at the time, you know, because they also had job training programs as well, and it did help bring that town, you know, some economic success, but later he eventually became governor of Missouri and he implemented this statewide, and this was no longer private money funding. The relocation of industry, it became public money, and that actually passed through the courts, and so uh, that was considered legal and did not violate those gift clauses. After that, the, the rest is sort of history. It continued on from there through economic development, agencies and programs, and all the way up until sort of a, a modern supercharging of it, actually. No pun intended here, when in 2014, Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, learned a little bit about uh, incentives granted to the Tesla Motors company in Nevada, about $1.3 billion. This is according to reporting from Bloomberg, and was a little bit envious of that large of an uh, award and told his people to go out and find a bigger one, and there we have HQ2.
0: Now, how big of an issue are tax incentives today? Like, how much money are we talking about?
1: So, there's some disagreement on how to count it, but research from Tim Bartik at the Upjohn Institute places it at about 45 billion annually. But a recent paper published by Kaylin Slattery of Columbia Business School and Owen Zadar of Princeton pegged the low end at around 30 billion. So, you know, in comparison, NASA's budget is 22.6 billion. So,
0: so what states are proposing to curb tax incentives? So right now we got
1: 14. Alabama, Arizona, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Illinois, Iowa, Maryland. New Hampshire has a bill, but it is more to study what would happen if they joined this. Then New York, which has been leading the charge here, particularly last year because they had filed in 2019 as well, as well as Rhode Island. Utah has a slightly different bill, and I'll come back to that in a second. And West Virginia. Utah's bill is different than the other states in that it, A, has gotten farther so far. It's gotten out of committee and was uh, approved not by the full legislature, but it also only comes into effect when all 50 states actually sign a interstate compact. And it has more of a different direction in both impact and intention. It's called an interstate compact to promote economic cooperation, something close okay. to that. All right. And it's more so a pro-business approach rather than a limiting of economic tools. It's more of a promotion of shared economic tools to draw businesses. There's more to it than that, but I'm simplifying it.
0: Now, is there one state that's sort of leading this effort or how is this happening? It's one state
1: that did file in the previous wave that also refiled and has been proactive on. So, Social media as well as outreach efforts has been New York. Illinois has as well. They've hosted a lot of press conferences there, as well as gotten a lot of the word out and promoted it. But New York had filed bills in the previous wave than when there were only five states who were filing these interstate compact bills, and they filed in this round. And I believe Assemblymember Ron Kim has been very active on this, both writing op-eds as well as promoting this legislation.
0: So New York and Illinois involved. If I remember correctly, both New York and Illinois were deep into the competition to get HQ2.
1: Absolutely. And I think that might have been the double-edged sword of that involving themselves so deeply in a pitch for their state to amazon hq2 i think soured some of both the voters as well as some of the um legislators there that they thought those who look at the budgets every day and say we don't have money for this or money for that saw large packages put together for amazon and felt like they needed to i guess lead the charge in ending that sort of thing particularly when it resonated so much with voters of their state
0: Are there any states that actively don't want to join this? Maybe they see it as an opportunity to capitalize on being the only players left competing for these businesses?
1: So that's the thing is that with this compact, they wouldn't be able to capitalize on any new business since the compact would only end the tax incentive wars or particular devices between the states who signed the agreement. These states that have signed the compact, they're still free to use any of these economic development tools in pursuit of businesses in states that haven't signed the compact. If you have not signed the compact, you still are. An open target, I guess, would be a term to use. But like I said, with Utah, there are some states that want to take a different approach approach, but are still interested in it. I think most legislators would prefer to save a dime on certain company relocations, but there haven't been any states that have actively opposed it.
0: Assuming that some of these compacts do come about, they do get agreed to, how would they be enforced? Part of the
1: enforcement is, I mean, is a behavioral thing, much like with Prisoner's Dilemma, you don't want to sell out your compatriot, I guess, because mm-hmm. if this thing keeps happening, they're going to be the one who sells you out next time. So part of it is behavioral, but uh, another part is that it is a compact that each state has given taxpayers in other states standing in their courts to enforce the letter of the law in the compact. So, And here this is still up in the air as to how this would exactly work, but, you know, say Illinois violated the compact, compact, taxpayers in New York would be able to potentially sue in Illinois courts to have the the attorney general enforce the laws in the compact. With compact law, that it's still a little bit tenuous. The Supreme Court has not taken up several cases that would resolve some lingering questions. Another thing is that many people have, I guess, Criticized it in a way to say that in the end, states are still free, legislators are still free to leave the compact when a good deal comes around. So that is one chink in the enforcement, but it still is enforced through both a shared willingness to lay down arms as well as granting standing in their state's courts.
0: Now, you recently wrote an excellent piece about this. Did you talk to anyone who raised issues about these proposed compacts?
1: Certainly, there were several people who raised issues. And like all large collective action, you know, there are always going to be issues. I think a lot of people on the positive side did say one of the main benefits of this is that it shows people are willing to engage in this. But some of the main, I guess, criticisms people have had are that the compact could potentially run afoul of the commerce clause, particularly in regulating interstate commerce, because it gets a little convoluted from there. I can't give an exact example at the moment, but it would be potentially regulating grants and or business from even site selection firms, things like that, from being able to engage in, uh, in business. But there were also other criticisms of that enforcement would not be as solid if Congress had actually enshrined this compact into law. If federal law was supporting this compact, then that would make it far more of a solid and enforceable set of rules. There were also worries about it, particularly that its initial buy-in to end company-specific subsidies doesn't get to some of the biggest, more egregious deals, particularly with the largest deal was actually for Boeing. And that deal was written to be a narrowly targeted industry deal that targeted the aerospace industry. But there really is one. The biggest tree in the forest is Boeing. So it wasn't a company-specific deal, but it ended up being that way.
0: Well, all right, Aaron, I thank you very much for coming here. It's been fascinating. And I'm sure we'll have you back to talk if these compacts go anywhere. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now for another edition of Willis Ways in, where Tax Notes contributing editor Ben Willis discusses tax planning issues.
2: Thanks, Dave. Today we'll be discussing PLR twenty twenty zero nine double O two and answering the following question: What types of industries will not qualify for an active trader business ruling with no income? My answer is simply none. This is based on Section 355 itself, its underlying policies, and the facts and circumstances analysis that govern all active trade or business determinations. The recent PLR was released February 28, 2020, and I'd like to give a shout out to Emily Foster, who's provided our readers with fantastic coverage on the ruling and issues related to it. The IRS ruled, although no income was collected on the division of a likely pharmaceutical business, that this still qualified for Section 355 treatment. Now, when I say likely pharmaceutical business, this is due to the fact that the ruling actually mentions regulatory functions which are often associated with requirements related to pharmaceutical companies and drug testing, and they also discuss testing phases before commercialization of the products being tested. So I believe it's a a fair assessment for folks to view this as a pharmaceutical ruling. But this has led people to question whether or not rulings can be obtained in other areas, other industries, like the technology industry. As I've said, I believe there should be no limitation on the type of industry or business that is capable of qualifying for an active trade or business but not have income. Why is there so much commotion about this ruling? Well, the 355 regulations, dash three, provide that generally in order to have a qualifying active trade or business, there must be the collection of income. Now I say generally because before that statement is made, the word ordinarily is used in the regulation. And folks have historically relied on that ordinarily provision to gain comfort in knowing that there may be some exceptions to that general rule. However, because of the length of drug testing, pharmaceutical companies, some of the new industries in technology you can take spacex for example and launching people into space and other industries which will take a long time in order to generate profits or income and realize that this ruling could be applicable to a wide variety of taxpayers and so when i look at this issue and ask myself Ben, how are you gaining comfort in the fact that industries outside of tech and pharma might be able to obtain this ruling? I really look to Rev Rule 2019 9, which is where the IRS suspended two revenue rulings from the 50s, in which they believe those revenue rulings could be interpreted as requiring income in order to satisfy the active trader business requirement. These revenue rulings are in the real estate and oil business, which is very important. So one can't look solely at the study or the notice itself and say, well, because pharma and tech were the only fields mentioned, these must be the only areas in which the IRS is looking to provide rulings. I would argue, in fact, the opposite is true. I think they're actually looking at these areas because they happen to be ripe for situations in which there are lengthy R&D periods and before income can be accrued and profits be developed. If Congress thought special rules should exist for certain entities like S-corporations, REEDs, or foreign businesses, they easily could have included those rules. If Congress thought that certain trades or businesses should be limited from the active trade or business a requirement inside a 355B, they could have included those. They didn't. But what they did include is a large grant of regulatory authority to the IRS in order to provide these regulations. And the IRS is now studying its historic regulation that requires that ordinarily income must be collected. But they've given us these clues from these historic rev rules that have been pulled as well as this new revenue ruling and citing the pharmaceutical and technology fields as examples where exceptions could be made. I would like to encourage the IRS as well as taxpayers to be open-minded in terms of the types of businesses that they seek rulings for and exceptions that can be made to this general rule. Before leaving, I would like to thank each of you for reaching out with your questions and comments. They are greatly appreciated. You can reach out to me at Willis Ways In on Twitter or through email at ben.willis at taxanalyst.org. I'd also like to announce Tax Notes will soon be launching a new podcast called Willis Ways In, where I'll be discussing controversial topics and tax planning. And now coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes
0: magazines. I'm joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what do you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Stephen Bates, Michael Lukacs, and David DeRuey consider how recently proposed regs treat cloud computing transactions. Christopher Waja looks at information that the IRS could use to determine whether a taxpayer had a cryptocurrency taxable event. In Tax Notes State, David Bertoni, David Swetnam berland and Jamie Shaw discuss several serious consequences from Wayfair. Timothy Noonan and Ariel Doolittle discuss how New York's personal income tax rules are applied to wage-based compensation for non-residents. And in Tax Notes International, Gabriella Capristano considers the use of alternative forms of dispute resolution to resolve tax treaty disputes, while Joseph Brothers discusses how the U.S. ECI rules can conflict with tax treaty profit attribution principles. Finally, in the opinions page, Carrie Elliott looks at routine activity theory and tax compliance. You can read all that and a lot more in the March 16th editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast.taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to tax notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analysts, Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.